Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church to do lifestyle ministry. We pray it will help you as well. Uh, if you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're going to be turning there in just a moment. Uh, and we're going to go through this worksheet together. Once again, kind of the goal is just for us to walk through a little bit further of uh, some of the things that we've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and today has been, um, it's one of those doozy passages that kind of was like, whoa, this is kind of heavy for us to walk through. Uh, but we are also very thankful for it uh, because in here, what, what we find is that even if these are challenging words for us, they are very needed words for us. There's something that we need to hear. That's interesting today. So um, I was laughing, but obviously since this is Valentine's Day and whatnot, last week was Super Bowl Sunday. You know, I kind of anticipated like it's me, me and my kiddos here. So I'm just thankful that you are here tonight uh, in our services today. It's interesting. Uh, you know, our, our first service has been doing good. Our second service was scary kind of packed today. It was like, where did all these people come from? And it was a great problem to have, but it was just like, wow, uh, I could see some people, I think they came in like, I'm not staying for this and turned around and they, they were a little uneasy because of space. And then like in the evening service today, you got room. If you were, if you were a pew jumper, you got plenty of room. Okay. So it's, it's fighting kind of that, that realm and, and getting that right balance. But, um, what, what's so neat, uh, about even today was, was really, um, special. We had, um, uh, some of our college students in the 1030 service brought a um, group of homeless guys that are living downtown they've been ministering to, and I uh, invited them to come to church with them and came and picked them up this morning and, and brought them over to church. And, uh, and the reason why I, I met a couple of them uh, after the service, but the reason that uh, I knew some of the students, they said they've been ministering to, and, um, and what was unique was, uh, go ahead and just have confession time, in the middle of the sermon today, I hear loud snoring, Okay. I mean, really, really loud snoring that, and I could tell people like around and I'm like, and at first I was like, you know, I thought I was somewhat engaging, but never mind. I did think I was engaging. Um, but I look over there and, it, and it's one of the guys that have been, that came in and he, he's just out. And I could tell everybody's like really nervous because it wasn't just like one of those like, I mean, it was a loud snore. Sawing logs is appropriate, okay? And, uh, and so they're trying to wake him up when I, and there was a part like I, I didn't want to call attention to, but I almost want to say, that's all good. Because in my, in my mind, the, the thing that I'm processing, I'm trying to get through this you know, sermon and whatnot and hearing that and seeing all the kind of deal, I'm thinking to myself, here's somebody who may not have had a warm, comfortable place to sleep in who knows how long. And he got in the room and it felt warm and it felt comfortable and he felt safe and at peace. And if the, his memory today of walking away from church was that it was a safe place that he, he slept well in, praise the Lord for it. I'm okay with that. I really am okay with that. Because deep down, even when we, we come to God's house, when we come to, around God's people, there should be this sense of peace among it, right? Uh, hey, there's clarity now. There's focus here. And so even in, when he calls us to do hard things, that there should be such a sense of, of relief. And, and so even with this, in a, in a situation like forgiveness, uh, I think there should be a sense of peace that comes around, even as we talk about what I call relational boundaries. Uh, some of you may have, have read the old book, Steve Cloud uh, Boundaries. It was written years ago about relational stuff. It's a very good book. Um, so that, that's the reason why I use this term, but some of the things when we draw in from is a few different spots. But uh, when you look on the handout there, it says that there's a difference between forgiveness and enablement, right? Uh, you know, the difference is forgiveness is I have forgive you for what you've done. Enabling is allowing someone to continue in their bad behavior, right? And so there is a difference there in forgiving someone for what they've done 
and enabling someone to continue down a path that is uh, is dark and and distorted and can actually hurt other people. Uh, obviously, typically, uh, enabling happens most often in a parent-child relationship, right? Where you're enabling someone to continue on behavior and you don't let them ever sort of experience the consequences for what they've done, but we can do it in all kinds of relationships. You could do it in a job relationship, in a marriage relationship. But in our commitment to showing grace to others, we must consider the ramifications of enabling others to continue in sin. And that is, if they continue in sin, is that good for their benefit? No. Is that good for your benefit? Absolutely it's not. So here's the thing I want us to look at, common misconceptions about forgiveness. Uh, Here's the misconceptions, okay? These are not things that I say are right. I'm going to say these are misconceptions. Well, the first misconception is this. We can forgive and what? Forget. How many people say, well, I, I, you know, we got to forgive and forget. Uh, no, you don't. Okay. Um, I, I know that God's grace, Jeremiah 31, 34 says he remembers our sins no more. Now, I know when he says that, it doesn't mean that God has selective amnesia, okay? It's not like, oh, really? I didn't know you did that when you were 16. He knows what we've done, but he's saying he's not recalling that, and he's not making us pay for that mistake anymore. Now, why I say that is, I think it's impossible to forgive and forget, to be hurt very, very deeply and go, I'm going to move on past it. I don't think you can do that, and in fact, I don't know if it's wise to do that, right? I mean, if you, keep, if you keep getting bit by the neighbor's dog and you keep forgetting about it, guess what? You're going to continue to get bit. And so that's probably not the wisest thing that needs to happen. So I think that's a misconception about forgiveness. The second thing is this. Uh, forgiveness guarantees that we offer unchecked trust. That is a misconception that when you forgive someone, that means that you trust them and you don't check in that. It's unchecked. It's like you get a free pass to do whatever you want to do. I don't think that's wise either. I don't think that it's wise to give someone unchecked trust. Uh, I have often told people that sometimes when you put boundaries on relationships, whether it's parent-child, spouse-to-spouse, friend-to-friend, you might say, uh, I'm going to put some ramifications, I'm going to put some parameters around this. A lot of times people say, well, that means you don't trust me. This is what I know as a parent. Sometimes it's not that I don't trust my child, I just don't trust the environment. Make sense? Hey, that environment is not going to be conducive for your health and your growth. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to limit your exposure to that environment because I don't know if you're at that place where you can be unchecked trust yet. And and so with that, sometimes it's not personal, but I I realize this. Nobody, what's the the old line that says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Okay, It's, it's complete. And so the more that we have, the more that we can find ourselves almost in a dangerous spot. So so forgiveness does not, should not guarantee that we offer unchecked trust. The third misconception is this. Forgiveness removes the potential of natural consequences. That's a misconception. That sometimes we are living and walking in certain situations. We go, why, why am I having to deal with these consequences? I ask God for forgiveness. I ask my spouse for forgiveness. I ask my boss for forgiveness. They need to be kind and just get on with it, Right? And we tend to realize, we, we fail to remember that sometimes just the world has natural consequences, right? If, if you do something to, um, I, if you blow a hole in your roof this week, your carpet's going to get wet, okay? <laughs> there's consequences for that. No matter how sorry you are about it, if there's a hole in your roof, guess what? Rain's going to come, and now it's going to damage the floor, and it's going to be other stuff. Like, so we can't remove ourselves to say that there are natural consequences. Oftentimes in life, when I'm dealing with consequences, I want to know this. Is God doing this to me? 
Is God doing this to me? I just want to know, God, are you trying to teach me a lesson? Or then I think, oh, what if Satan's doing this to me? You know, maybe Satan's the one trying to trip me up right now. Or then I think, what if this is from somebody else? But sometimes I have to say, sometimes it might just be natural consequences by how the world works. You did this, you lost your job. You do this kind of stuff, you lost the money. You did this, you, you, you lost the relationship. Um, I'll never forget talking with a guy one time years ago who had gotten fired from his job. He was now uh, separated from his wife. And uh, he came in to talk to me, wanted to ask something. And he tells me that he had uh, gotten into some really, really bad, heavy stuff. He found himself in a lot of sin. He had done something in a work vehicle that was illegal. And he got taken to jail. And now he is estranged from his family. And he looks at me and he goes, And I'm just so angry at God for doing this to me. I said, do what? He said, I can't believe God is doing this to me. And I was like, I'm sorry. Did God do that in the work truck? Did God do that to your spouse? Did God do that to your kids? Oh, wait, that was you, right? So guess what? These are just natural consequences of the decisions you made. And I don't want to hear that because sometimes I want to go, is there a scapegoat somewhere? Sometimes I just got to own up. That's on me. And that's the way this world works. Sometimes you do things, there's natural consequences. And so forgiveness is not always the removal of consequences. Sometimes we made our bed. Guess what, folks? You gotta lie in it. We gotta we gotta walk with it. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't restore things, that God can't bring good from it, but sometimes we have to deal with those consequences. So important goals for forgiveness, if we think about it this way. Uh, when I when I begin to pray and think through the people in my life that I needed to show grace to, this is kind of the working definition that I had as a young man, and this is it. Offering forgiveness means you are hoping for God's best for that person. That's that's a good indicator for me if I really want this person to be forgiven or to to understand, do I hope for God's absolute best for that person? Do I want this person to be richly blessed and to be in the center of God's will in their life? Psalm 27, 13 says, I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Sometimes I'm going, God, I just pray that in the land of the living, before this person dies, they come to know you. They come to experience grace. They come to experience restoration. Like, I want to see that happen. And so when you offer forgiveness, that doesn't mean you're enabling. That doesn't mean unchecked trust. But it means this. God, I desire their best. You're best for them. And maybe part of that is me releasing them from the pain that they have caused on me. Um, Our forgiveness should be modeled after God's forgiveness of us. So if we think through that, our forgiveness should be modeled after God's forgiveness of us. So when we think through, what does it mean to forgive someone? It should be modeled. The example, the standard should be none other than the grace that Jesus gives us. So it causes me to go, all right, so what is God's forgiveness like? And, and for me, here's the thing. Uh, I always have to go back to these kind of thinkings, but does God forgive us with words like these examples? Okay, Because this is kind of how a lot of times I would like to think about forgiving other people. Um, would God forgive us this way? I'll forgive them, but I'm just not going to tell them. Okay, is that where God's after today to say, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm just not going to tell you about it. You just be in the dark about it. Because I've said, all right, fine. People said, can I just pray right now and say, God, I forgive them. Can we just move on? Okay, yeah, you can. But deep down, if this person is living in despair because of what they've possibly done to you and others, they need to hear it at least in some form or fashion. I I talked with someone after uh, one of the services today who said, the person I need to forgive, I don't even know how to get word to because they're in a federal prison. But I know that I need to do something. I need 
I need them to know that how Jesus has changed me, and I pray that Jesus could change them as well. Now, it's one thing to forgive them, but for this person who's done that wrong is in a prison cell, they probably need to hear that in some way, to know that someone's thinking about them at that level. Second way that I think we, we don't have exactly the way that forgiveness should be, number two, I'll forgive them, but I just don't like them, okay? <laughs> you know, if you think about God's forgiveness, like, well, I, I, I forgive you, but I just don't like that person. Now, now here's the deal. I, once again, this is a very complicated matter because I'm not saying trust. I'm not, I'm, I am saying boundaries, but there should be some level that you actually do want God's best for this person. I mean, one of the things, especially if you have if you have a situation in your life where you have a divorce in your past and that is an estranged, toxic, strained relationship, and you, and especially, and I'll just talk about how I often have to talk to people, if you have a child shared between that relationship and you go, that person makes me so mad, what do you want for your kid's sake? What would be the best situation for your kids? I'll tell you what, the best situation for those kids would be both parents would love the Lord Jesus with all they have. That'd be the best thing that could happen. So at that level, if I want the best for my kids, and I'm wanting that former spouse to be able to know Jesus well. So it's even like, so that it's like, I like them. I am for them. I, I want something good to happen in their life because it's best for them and best for others around them. The third example that's not exactly the way we do things is I'll forgive them, but I just don't want to be around them. Kind of mentioned that today, this morning, but to say, look, when, when Jesus forgives us, he says, you can come into heaven with me. You can live with me forever. So, um, once again, there are some situations where someone is in prison. Someone has already died. Someone is, this is an ex, and we're not going to go hang out all the time. I, I get that. But, but at some level, we should not have this kind of aura of we're repulsed by that person. We should say, no, 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 the grace of Jesus has changed me, and I want it to change other relationships. Now, here's needed acceptance of consequences. I brought you to Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, because this is a unique passage of Scripture that we'll look at. Uh, but if you look at it, this is right at the last book of the law. Uh, the five books that we call like the five books of Moses that you know Moses helped put together. Uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, really, he's the main character, earthly speaking, throughout this whole passage. Uh, and Deuteronomy, chapter, we're in 32. Moses is going to die in 34 and pass the mantle of leadership to Joshua. Then Joshua takes over and Moses is in heaven. Okay, So these last few chapters are pretty significant. And if you think about it, before we go to chapter 34, I mean, 32, I want you to turn over to chapter 34 for a second. Go all the way to chapter 34, and you see these last few verses, uh, and this chapter is called The Death of Moses, is the subtitle there. And Deuteronomy 34, look at um, verse uh, 5. So, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now, before you move past that, it says he buried him there, but it doesn't say who the he is. You know, the only other person who's been in that, this uh, chapter? God. God actually buried Moses, had a private burial service for Moses. Nobody even knew about it. Nobody else was there. Now, does that seem like a pretty tight relationship, if you would imagine? I, I don't know how this works. I don't want to go too down this line, but it's almost as if God is digging the hole, putting Moses where he is and covering it up and having us, us a moment nobody else there around. This is, this is unique. This is unlike anything else that happens in Scripture. Um, I love where it says, verse 7, 
Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Now, how many of y'all would like to be able to say that at 120, okay? I'd like to say that at 40, okay, if I could get there and say, ah, my vigor is unabated, my eyes undimmed, right? At 120, he's still going strong. Uh, verse 8, And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses was ended. Now look at verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Think about that line. Nobody's ever been like Moses who knew the Lord face to face, who the Lord actually prepared a burial ground. So this is somebody very special to the Lord. Is that fair? A very unique story. I doubt that any of us are going to be able to put on our, our biography one day to say, oh, and by the way, God Almighty, the great I Am, did a private burial service for me. And nobody knew him like I did. That may be said of you, but I doubt it's going to be said of anybody else but, but right here in Moses. Now, the reason why I bring that to you is I want you to go back to chapter 32. Because in chapter 32, God who knows Moses like no other man, and this man who knows God like no other, God is going to tell him, you don't get to go into the promised land because your decisions way back when. Here's the consequences of your actions. And if there's anybody who I feel like should have gotten a free pass, it's Moses. And you know what God does? He doesn't give them the free pass that we'd expect them to give. Look, look what happens in, in verse 48. It says, That very day the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession. They've made it to the promised land. Verse 50. And die on the mountain which you go up. Well, that seems pretty stark. Okay, <laughs> want you to go up there and die there. <laughs> Thank you, right? Uh, that sounds like a Vince Gill song. Go, go rest high on that mountain, right? Okay, this is where it's coming from. Uh, die on that mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Or and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Now, folks, don't miss this, okay? Um, he is speaking of a time Moses is about to die, the guy who, the guy who knows God face to face, the guy who God is going to have a private burial service for. And he looks at him and says, you see the promised land over there? I can see it. We actually made it. I've been wandering with these ridiculous people in the wilderness for 40 years, and we're finally here. And I'm feeling good. My health is in good shape. Eyesight's good. Strength is good. I'm ready to go. And God says, this is the end of the line for you, Moses. What? Why? You remember what you did back in, in the wilderness? Yeah, and you remember who you stuck me with for 40 years? I'm lucky I didn't kill all these people, God. Like I, I, I think I did pretty good, Moses. This is going to be the end of the line. He says that you didn't treat me as holy in front of the people. Moses attempted to take God's glory, and so God removed some of Moses' reward. So when he says you didn't treat me as holy, some of you will remember this story. Some of you may not know it. It's in, it's in Numbers. But what takes place is there's two times in the wilderness where it says that God's people were thirsty, and they came up to a rock, and God told Moses first time, Go up and take your staff and strike that rock, and water's going to come out, right? Now, when was the last time anybody here took a staff, hit a rock, and water came out, okay? 
I've never done that, okay? Not even come close to it. So did that take an act of faith to do? Absolutely. Absolutely it did. But there is something significant about seeing Moses' muscles bulging as he takes his staff and hits this rock and water comes out. Somebody in the crowd couldn't mistake that Moses did that rather than God did it. Fair? Well, Moses had the staff. Moses struck the rock. He got the right spot. So, okay, yeah, God did that, but Moses kind of was a part of it. Second time it happens, they're wandering again. They're about to die of thirst. Everybody's like, Moses, did you bring us out here? There's not enough grave plots in Egypt. We just want to go back to Egypt. And Moses goes, God, I can't take these people anymore. I, I, I can't do it. Like, I'm so tired. And, and, and he says, I want you to go and stand before the people. I know, I know. I saw the rock. And I want you to stand before the rock. I know. Strike the rock. And God says, and I want you to speak to the rock. Speak to it? What would you like me to say? Aquafina, come forth? Like, what do you, what do you want me to say, right? Like, what, what, what am I supposed to say to the rock? Moses, I want you to go and speak to the rock, and water's going to come forth. But you need to do it in front of all the people. Now, you talk about an extra level of faith now, right? So, the narrative says, Moses got before the people, said, You rebellious people, always arguing with the Lord, you da 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 but God's delivering you this day. And it says he took up his staff and he struck the rock. Twice. Now, why would he have struck it twice? It's so funny the way it writes. It's like, hit it. It didn't come out. Everybody's staring. Everybody remembers the word last time. Let me do it one more time. He strikes it. Now water comes forth. He goes, whew. Okay, good. Didn't want to lose my reputation in front of all those people. And God says, come here, boy. What was that about? What was that? I told you to speak the rock. Yeah, but last time you said strike it, so I just thought I'd strike it again. What was that about, Moses? I told you to speak to it. Do you not believe that I could have done it just by a word? Yeah, I could. No, no, no. What was, why was Moses so consumed with doing it with his own staff? Personally, if, if this passage over here, if it's telling us, what is it saying? You did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. Who did Moses want the credit to go to that day? Moses. And God said, end of the line. You're going to lead them to the promised land, but you're not going to go in. Why? Because you didn't treat me as holy. Not the midst of them. You didn't treat me as holy. So here, here's the deal, right? So when this happened, Moses attempted to take God's glory from these people, or right in front of them. And so God removed some of Moses' reward. You will take them to the promised land, you're not going to make it all the way there. You're not going to be able to enjoy all of it. Now, God promises Moses an eternal forgiveness, but he also applies a temporal consequence. In this passage, what did it say about Moses? He was going to die and be gathered to what? It said gathered to his fathers. You know, you know what that means? That means you're going to be gathered to your people. That means that he's going to heaven. He's going to be among God's people. So, God is saying, hey, Moses, you're going to be gathered to your people, so I'm going to give you an eternal forgiveness. You are forgiven for what you've done, but there are going to be some temporal consequences this side of heaven. I'm sorry. You're going to have those, and he's going to keep it. So nothing could change the fact that Moses' sin deserved and demanded consequences. Nothing could change that fact. Moses' sin did deserve consequence, and it also demanded consequences. Now, why would it deserve consequences? Because if God's people saw Moses act in such a way 
where he defamed and tried to rob God's glory and he got off scot-free, guess what that teaches a generation of people to do? Take the credit for everything else God was doing. And God knew that the worst thing for that generation that Joshua was going to lead was for a bunch of people to think that somehow what they had done had accomplished salvation. And so he says, no, 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 there, there's going to be consequences, and I'm going to make an example here of Moses. Any of y'all heard a moment like that where your parents made an example of somebody trying to get everybody's attention? Let me, let me tell you how this worked out in my life. I, was, uh, I played soccer in high school, and one of our last games, um, I wasn't very skilled at soccer. I was just big, and I didn't mind, like, really getting dirty and, and knocking into people. And so I'd, I'd play on defense. If anybody got my box, like, I'd just take them out. And, and the thing about, like, slide tackling, if you've never played soccer, if you go and hit the body first and then hit the ball, you're going to get carded for it or at least foul called or something like this. But if you can make the ref see that you went for the ball and you just so happen to take the guy out in the process, if you do it wisely, you won't get in trouble. I was the master of slide tackling where I could take the ball and then also send the guy to, like, the rafters, okay? Like, I was really good. I mean, one time I actually – so I remember this one game. It was getting a little heated. I got the ball first, and then I did like – but as, as I slid into him, I mean, the guy went to the fence. I mean, it was, it was a good hit. Well, the, the ref comes over and gives me a red card. I and mean, in soccer, a red card is you're out for the game. Uh, in some leagues, you're out for that game. And the next game, because our high school had been in so many bench brawlings, uh, clearings, because we just had a, yeah, a bunch of guys like that in our, our school matched the suspension of the league, which meant that the last games of my senior season, I'm on the bench. And I, I go, and I, I mean, I'm begging the athletic director. You were at the game. You know it was a clean play. I even went to the ref after the game, and I said, what was that about? That was a clean play. You know what the ref said to me? It was getting heated, and I had to make an example of somebody. Thank you for allowing me to be that example, right? Okay? I go to the athletic director. This is what the ref said. He said he'd even call you and tell you there should be an exception. He says, if I make an exception of you, then I'm going to have to deal with this from here on out. Everybody's going to think I can give an exception to them. Sorry, it can't bend the rules. And I'm going, but it's me. <laughs> okay? Like, uh, uh, it was a claim, right? And, and yet, and he said, one day... You're going to grow up and you're going to thank me for it. I said, one day you're going to be wrong. Okay? Like, no, I'm never going to do that. But do I see what he was after? Absolutely, I do. Because if he gave an exception to this rule, what causes it to happen? Everybody else continued to break the rules. And God knew that at this moment that the man that he knew face to face still needed consequences to wake everybody up. The New Testament, Paul said, that if you have to rebuke an elder or a pastor, you do it in front of everybody to put the fear of God in everybody who listens. Huh. Make an example to realize this, that God's serious about his holiness. He doesn't want to be played around with. So while nothing could change the fact that Moses' sin deserved and demanded consequences, nothing could change the fact that God's mercy offered and applied blessings superior to the consequences. So my question to you is this, is that, God's mercy was even more, and he applied blessings that were superior to the consequences. And you go, but Moses didn't get to enter into the promised land. You're right. Where did Moses go and said? Heaven. All right, you tell me you want to go to Canaan or you want to go to heaven, okay? What was Canaan known for? It flowed with milk and honey. I don't even like that. Okay? Like, I don't even, like milk and honey doesn't even sound that impressive to me. Streets paved with gold? No more sin? No more sickness? No more tears? I'll take that right? I'll take that any day. So, so don't miss this. God was giving Moses far more than what he deserved, but in that he also allowed natural consequences to take his path for the good of others, those that were watching around. 
Now, we think through this. Don't blame God for when your mistakes deserve God's discipline. Or don't blame God for when your mistakes maybe deserve others' retaliation, internal guilt, or even natural consequences. Don't blame God for stuff that you and I have done. Sometimes we have to step back and say, okay, whether this is God's discipline over my life, maybe others are retaliating against me, or this is internal guilt that I'm struggling with, or maybe these are just the natural consequences of this is how the world works, I don't need to blame God for what I've done. I don't. And I also have to realize this, that if God allows me to suffer through natural consequences in this life, but I still get him in heaven, I'm good with that. I'll, I'll take that rather than, can you just get, let me off the hook now and, and not be with you forever? I would take that. Now, here's some helpful considerations for reconciliation. Um, when we think through in any type of reconciliation relationship, because Moses, right, he, God has given us an example of what does it mean that when you sin, that sometimes there are consequences. Folks, in that, in our relationships with one another, sometimes you can forgive people. You want God's best for people, but there's also certain natural consequences that take place with it. Now, don't allow someone to use religious guilt provoking you to enable further toxic behavior. Uh, people are very good at using religious guilt, uh, especially if they know that you're spiritual, you're a Christian, you follow God. They're going to use religious guilt. And here's what that religious guilt looks like on the back side of your page. The first one is this. Well, if you really were a Christian, you would forgive me, right? If you really were a Christian, you would forgive me. And what I would volley back is saying, I didn't say I wasn't forgiving you. I just said I wasn't going to give you a free pass to hurt somebody else anymore. That's all. There's a boundary set up. And it doesn't mean that I don't forgive you. It just means I'm, there are consequences sometimes take place. Sometimes it's said like this. I said I'm sorry already. Why are you still upset? What's the big deal? Can't we just move on? Hey, I said I'm sorry. You're supposed to be a Christian. You're supposed to forgive me. Let's move on. Why are you still upset? Uh, have you ever been in... in you, you've asked for forgiveness. You've apologized. And still there, you're still getting that cold shoulder. And you're like... Just get over it. Just move on. And the person's like, you don't know what it's like to be in my world. It's not that easy. Another comment sometimes we'll say is, how long are you going to be mad about it? I mean, how long? I mean, two hours, two weeks? What are we talking about here? Just give me a timeline. And I love it because what's happening is, is the person is saying, just give me a date on the calendar and you promise that by that point you're going to be all right. That's insensitive and it's unrealistic. You ever know you've been hurt so bad? It's not like you can say, oh, in three days, I'll be good. You're like, in three days, I'm still just processing. I, I, I'm frustrated. Uh, I told someone before when uh, there had been a sense of uh, in a marriage relationship, unfaithfulness had taken place. Spouse forgave. Then uh, about 10 years later, unfaithfulness took place again. And the person who was the victim here was willing to work on marriage, but they were... They were beyond frustrated, and they were saying, look, uh, I don't know if I, I, I need some space. The person who had been unfaithful said, what if I'm putting in all this work, and, and my spouse ain't never going to get around to it? What if I'm doing all this work, and they're never going to forgive me, and all this has been nothing but a waste? And I said, so you're saying that your spouse here needs to give you a timeline. Yeah, just tell me like how long, and we'll know, because I, if I, I'm willing to put in the work if, if you can tell me that it's going to work, but if it's not going to work, then what's the point of doing it? I said, I think that's fair. Spouse kind of looked frustrated at me. I said, no, no, no. How about this? Your spouse 
dealt with 10 years after you made the first mistake and then did it again and continue to love you 10 years after that. So why don't you try to reconcile the marriage for 10 years? And if it's not restored at that point, then you can walk. How does that sound? They didn't come back to counseling for me. I don't know why, but they, that was the last time they came and said, no, no if, if your spouse gave 10 years towards this after the mistakes, would you give 10 years to put it in? Uh, I, I don't know, right? How long are you going to be mad about it? Can't we just move on past this? Well, this is where it comes down to, this is relational boundaries here. The victimizer who demands the victim to get overhurt on his or her timetable is lacking compassion and ownership. If you did the hurt, you cannot demand in one week, you need to be over this. You don't have that right. In fact, if you are the victimizer, you need to be willing to do whatever you can and be willing to do whatever is needed to be done to reconcile. You don't have the right. If you put on a timetable, you're lacking compassion. You don't realize this. You have hurt someone desperately. And, and so to put them on a timetable lacks compassion. It also lacks ownership. You're putting that on them rather than on you. You need to get over this. Well, I guess they could turn the table and say, well, you should have never done this, right? No, no, no. At some point you say, okay, I, I've, I've got to own up to this fact, right? Like, I want to have compassion and ownership to what I've done. Um, do not be manipulated into thinking that forgiveness forces you to overlook needed boundaries. Don't let someone manipulate you into thinking in any type of way that forgiveness forces you to overlook needed boundaries. You can forgive someone and still say, you don't have the right to do this again, okay? Um, I have, uh, there, there's a lot of pastors in recent years who've, who've come under the gun, and I, I think honestly rightfully so, because in certain situations where abuse has taken place in, in relationships, some pastors have been known to tell wives to go back to the home and just be quiet about it, submit, and just pray that the husband changes. Um, here's what I would say. If anyone is ever in an abusive relationship, you need to get out of the house. You need to call the authorities, but you also don't have to run to divorce court. God can restore that marriage, could restore that marriage. But you do not need to put yourself or your kids in a harmful situation. You need to get out. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You call the police. You need to get whoever authority is involved, and you let them take care of what you can't take care of. And you say, oh, but I don't want it. That's going to put a strain in the relationship. No, the person that's doing that, they're putting their strain in the relationship. So to do that, you can, don't be manipulated that to forgiving means that you are unchecked trust, and come back in the home, and I promise, and you say you're never going to do it again. Now, sometimes people have got to re-earn trust. You ever been there before? You've been hurt and hurt and hurt again, and you can forgive, but you say, I'm not going to just give you the keys to my house anymore. I'm not going to give you the keys to my heart anymore and come in and mess around. Like, they've got to re-earn that at some level. So forgiveness is not enablement. I'll say it again. Forgiveness is not enablement. Enabling someone to continue on in bad behavior, and if we're not careful without putting rightful boundaries around a certain situation, it could be doing even more damage to that person by telling them there are no consequences for life. You don't have to worry about it. So if a person is drinking, you have the right to take away the keys, right? Love you. I forgive you. You don't get the car keys anymore. Uh, if someone refuses to pay you back what you loaned, you can forgive and refuse to do any more financial dealings with a person, right? Okay, you took money from me. And you're not getting it back. I'll forgive you. Can I have another loan? No, you cannot. You can't. I'm sorry. There, there's a boundary there. Yeah, but, but what, if, what if this person gets so bad that they're on the streets now? Well, when I look at the prodigal son, 
He didn't wake up until he hit rock bottom. You ever notice that? I, I don't want to go too much on a tangent here, and I don't want to get myself in trouble with what the Word doesn't teach, but I don't think the prodigal son would have ever learned anything if the father would have run back into the pig pen and said, here, can I put a jacket around you? You need some more food. You know what happened? He just stayed exactly where he was. He didn't wake up until he got to rock bottom. That's some of our stories, right? We didn't wake up until we hit rock bottom. Sometimes that's the best place to be. I got nothing left. I'm in trouble now. Like, what can I do? And so, so with that, you, you don't have to continue giving people what they say that they need. If a spouse is unfaithful, you have the right to demand access into whatever area you deem fit. If a spouse has been unfaithful and you say, I want to see your phone, and they say, you don't trust me? Yes. And in fact, you being weird about it makes me even distrust you more right now. What do you, you want to know where I am all the time? Yes, because you've been unfaithful and you've got to re-earn your trust. It's gone. I forgive you. I'm willing to put forth the work. But when you're being weird about it, it causes even more red flags to go up. And so if this, if a family member cannot control media consumption, it is wise to restrict access. You don't trust me anymore. I love you. I forgive you, but I'm also going to restrict how much access you have to it because I love you that much. And so forgiveness doesn't mean enablement, just to continue on in this. There is room in forgiveness for both blessing and boundary. You, in forgiveness, can bless someone and choose to do that, but you can also establish boundaries around it that is good and healthy for you, but also right and holy and helpful for that person. There is room for blessing and boundary. If God could do that for Moses, um, I think we could do that for others. Um, folks, this is also important to think, and I just, I just thought about this relationship, but it, um, if you've ever studied the words of the Apostle Paul, if you go to the letters in the New Testament, you know most of his letters at the end few verses, he starts calling people by name. Oh, so-and-so says thanks, and so-and-so tells so-and-so I said hey, and blah, 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 and has these kind of personal greetings. If you know this, that the guy who wrote the book of Mark at one point was on a mission trip with Paul, right? And then he got scared along the way, and so he went home. And then at some point, Mark says, can I come back? And Paul says, no. No. You're dead weight to me, man. You cause more issues. I don't need more drama on these trips. I'm having to babysit you. No, you've lost the opportunity. Well, Barnabas is like, come on, man. Mark's a good kid. He's just a little scared. He's fine. Like, you should bring him along. Paul's like, no, I'm not dealing with this. I, I've got too much to worry about as it is. Guess what happened? Two, Paul and Barnabas uh, uh, changed paths. They went on two different places. And Mark went with Barnabas, and then Paul went on his way. But at the end of his life, it's seen that part, Mark was with Paul again at the very end of his life. And I say that to say, I think Paul was saying, this boy needs some consequences. And you know what? It seemed like those consequences actually were advantageous for Mark in the end of the game. It was. And so it's not bad. So, so forgiveness can be blessing and boundary. I'm not going to let you to continue in this. Um, if you enable someone's sinful behavior, you are asking to be offended repeatedly. So, so enabling someone's sinful behavior, you're asking to be offended repeatedly. You're asking for the same thing to happen again and again and again. You're asking to be offended. You're asking to be hurt. You're asking for them to do damage to their own soul, which is obviously very, very challenging and, and not helpful for anybody. So you have to remember that when sinful stuff happens, that you are responsible for what you do, but you are not responsible for how another responds. And I, I pray this can really encourage somebody tonight. You are responsible for you. 
You're not responsible for how somebody else responds. You can't do that. Um, you're responsible for what you do in the decision. You're not responsible for how another responds. It's also important for you to know you're responsible for processing your feelings, but you're not responsible for how another feels toward your boundaries. You're responsible for processing your feelings. I want you to say this. You're not responsible for your feelings in the sense of like, if you feel guilt or anger or sadness, like I'm not saying like, oh, you're bad for any of those things. At that point, you're responsible for how am I going to interact with this? What am I going to do with these feelings that are coming in, right? So you're responsible for that. But if someone says, I can't believe you hurt my feelings that you're doing this, I'm not on that. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is how I respond, how I process, but I cannot take the weight of you've made me sad. You've made me angry. If you do this to me, I'm going to do that. No, no, no. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible for what you do. You're responsible for your feelings and nobody else. Um, when forgiveness is required, that means that something significantly sinful has transpired. So even the need for forgiveness tells you something. Something bad happened here. And so we need a wake-up call. I need to be able to find the restoration and healing from this, and this person needs to know this person has done something um, that needs forgiveness. I think that's the most important part is that sometimes people need to know what you did hurt, okay? What you did cause pain. And I'm not here to stick your nose in it. I'm just trying to say you, you can't forgiveness in its sense. When, when I have called or when I've confronted people and say, I forgive you, at that moment, I am saying, you did something wrong, and I'm also choosing to move on from it. Just to say I'm going to move on from it, there is no accountability there. You do say, this hurt, but I forgive you. And both has, have to be present there. Um, and it's okay to love someone and limit the way he or she can continue to hurt you. It's okay to do that. And, and that's more from a, a pastoral standpoint, I would say to this, that sometimes loving someone may be limiting the way he or she can continue to hurt you or to enable bad behavior. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is allow someone to hit rock bottom. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to limit the access they have to hurt other people. And these last things before we go, scriptural reminders for relational boundaries. Here are just a few other verses I would encourage you to think through. Psalm 26.4 says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. Well, that sounds judgmental, does it not? Oh, psalmist. You need to love everybody. Oh, I love them. I ain't going to sit down and listen to them, though. Not, not people who are liars, not people who are hypocritical. I'm not going to sit down and allow them access into my life. No, I'm not going to sit down and, and be exposed to that. I forgive them. They change. I'm willing there, but I'm not going to allow them to influence my way of thinking. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. So if, if I want to have integrity of being upright, it guides me. But someone who's treacherous, crooked in their ways, it can destroy them and also, guess what, destroy you in those relationships if you're not careful. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. You ever known someone who feels ensnared to their sin? And sometimes what happens is they can't get out and they want to drag everybody back into it with them, right? Just to see how many people else I can bring in. Be very, very careful. Proverbs 4.23 says this, but I think very importantly about relational boundaries. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Uh, some translations will say guard your heart. Care for it. Protect it. Okay? Why? Because it flows the springs of life. And if you allow someone to damage you at so level, just continue to hurt, 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 you better guard that thing. 
Because it, it, it causes us, our directions of the way that we go in life. And then here, here's, here's where I think Jesus was speaking on this issue in Luke 6, 31, when he said, And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Um, let me ask you a question. If Let's just imagine that you are 10 years removed from this moment and in a heap of trouble that you never thought you could ever find yourself. And if you knew that somebody could do something now to stop you from getting there, would you want them to do it? Even if it offended you? Even if it frustrated you? Even if it caused all kinds of drama in your life? If you call somebody like that, I'm going to get in your business right now and I'm going to push into you. Like, would you want them to do that? Well, would you want them to do that to you? Then that means that sometimes you've got to do that for them. That you've got to say, I'm, I'm willing to do this. I, I was told a long time ago by a mentor of mine, Travis, sometimes you're going to have to love people more than you love their happiness. You love their happiness, you allow them to continue in bad behavior. If you love them, you will confront them, you will put up the boundaries that you need to do. Why? Because you love them that much. And so with this, folks, forgiveness is important. It's necessary for our souls, for the glory of God, for the good of others, but also be very careful that we're not enabling further bad behavior in the way from it. So let me pray for you. Spirit of God, I pray that as we study uh, these verses tonight and to think through some practical wisdom that they kind of lead us to, God, it is difficult and challenging to know how to process this, but we know that your grace is sufficient and it is rich in mercy towards us, and we want to be people who have, um, that we are merciful, as your Beatitudes say, that, we, that blessed are the merciful because they'll receive mercy. We want to show mercy to others so we can experience it and be able to really understand it, grasp it in our lives. We also know, God, that sometimes it's not gracious to allow people to continue in bad behavior. Sometimes to speak the truth in love, sometimes to confront a brother or sister in sin is the most important thing that we can do so that, as your word says, it will cover over a multitude of sins that even haven't happened yet because we slow it down. And so, Lord, in the midst of this, we all have relationships in which that need to be reconciled, that need some help. But God, give us wisdom on how to apply this. Allow the people in our life that have strained relationships, allow them to see the grace of Jesus all over us, God. But also at the same point, help us know how to put up those boundaries in their lives for your glory, for their good, and for our good as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for joining us at the Equip Podcast. Make sure you get your notes and all of the downloads that you need to continue to be equipped for the work of the ministry. You can get all the resources for this episode or other Equip episodes at rockycreek.church.